Welcome to The Report Card with Nat Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. Over the last number of years, our lives, our children's lives, and their schools have been invaded by something widespread, life-changing, and potentially harmful. And I'm not referring to COVID-19 or some political ideology. I'm referring to something far more ubiquitous and society-altering, the smartphone. Recently, Doug Lamov wrote an article on this subject that struck a chord. That article, titled Take Away Their Cell Phones, was published at Education Next. And in it, Doug argues that cell phones are bad not only for the academic development of students, but also for fostering the sort of welcoming and inclusive communities that schools should provide. To discuss his article and more, I invited Doug onto the podcast. Doug is the author of Teach Like a Champion and founder of the Teach Like a Champion organization. Previously, Doug was a managing director and one of the founders of Uncommon Schools. His new book, Reconnect, Building School Culture for Meaning, Purpose, and Belonging, hits shelves next month. Doug, welcome to the report card. Thanks for having me on. Glad to be here. So, Doug, I think it's safe to say that this piece strikes a chord with people. So, Put in the specifics of the argument aside for a second, why do you think this article resonated so much with so many? Yeah, well, you know, it's not just a school's issue. I mean, I think schools have a particular role to play in thinking about how cell phones interact with our lives and with students' lives, but we all live this, right? One of the challenges of addressing cell phones and smart media is that we are addicts, all of us raising addicts. Just to kind of put that in perspective, you almost can't buy a garment these days that doesn't have a cell phone pocket, a place for you to keep your cell phone so it is constantly on you and never more than five feet away from you. Uh, and that just tells us how subtly and insidiously uh, they have uh, entered our lives without a ton of scrutiny and intentionality. Really, the rules for cell phones and how they engage in our lives have been set by well, you could say the designers or the engineers, you could say the people who sell them to us. And so, uh, you know, there's a lot of benefit. They've done a lot of good things. Uh, it, you know, democratization of information is potentially uh, really useful, but they're definitely costs as well. And I just don't think that we've wrestled with them, certainly as schools, but I also feel, you know, like the journey for me started as a parent and maybe that's why it resonates with people. Yeah, this may be pushing it too far, but I was watching a movie the other day with my my middle teen son, you might've heard of it. It's called the matrix. And it sort of made me think, you know, wow, in some ways the machines have, they have an outsized uh, influence on our lives and it's, it's sort of crept up. And we, we talked about it, that a bit, but that makes me sort of bring up the question about how much you think this article and this tack is kind of empowering to parents. Because I think I know from my personal experience, right, uh, there's this struggle with my kids. You don't want to be overly, you know, constraining to some degree. My oldest teen can make a pretty good argument that, hey, you really can't take it away from me. But I also think that parents, not just teachers in schools, but parents don't even have a clear sense a lot of the time. What are the options? What do we do here? And so I, I just wonder uh, what you make of that interpretation that, this article, again, you, you call it take away their cell phones, is empowering to parents. Yeah, I think it is empowering to parents. You know, I think that there's a collective action problem here. But I will just be clear that um, I was the parent who 
I, my initial goal was to have my kids not have a cell phone or at least have very restricted relationships with their cell phones. And it very quickly became clear to me that that was, if not impossible, certainly not fair to my kids, right? That social, their social life and their social development is important. You know, it's one of the things, the pandemic, I think is, you know, like a year and a half of isolation from, uh, from your peers and from the things that matter to you in your life is not, is not beneficial to young people. No one is going to call you on your landline and tell you, hey, we're all getting together at Nat's house tonight, right? All that happens via text and via Instagram, et cetera. And so if you want your kids to be connected, you sort of have to accept all or none. The present, you know, if your kids want to play on a sports team, how does the sports team communicate when and where practices and what uniforms you're wearing? It all happens, you know. So you really don't have a choice as a parent but to allow your children to participate in the culture of cell phones and therefore social media for the most part. And I think that's why 98% of teens have, you know, have cell phones and social media. But I think that many of us would like to have different rules uh, or different parameters that we set for them. And we have very little control over that. And interestingly, schools are one of the few places where we could exercise some intentionality um, and some, uh, we could take collective action that puts limits on the role of this device in our young people's lives, you know, uh, especially when we, uh, in the setting that is most important to their, to their development. So Doug, tell me if this is unfair characterization, but I think that uh, throughout your work, you can see this idea that, hey, the things you need to do to shape young people are not necessarily easy. Sometimes they're hard and sometimes they're uncomfortable. And to help students grow, you need to create environments with rules. And those environments aren't always going to be comfortable, and those rules need to be enforced. And I sort of see this cell phone article, particularly with schools, as being very much in line with that work. Does that sound fair? Yes, I think it's fair, though I, th I think the interesting thing is that many teenagers even know they themselves are beholden to this device in ways that they don't necessarily want to be. In other words, you know, when you are the head of a school and you make the announcement that they're going to be, you can't have your cell phone out during the school day, it has to be turned off and in your backpack. Are kids going to love this? Many of them probably not. Many of them will, you know, argue and fight back, et cetera. Many of them may quietly be happy. But I think the interesting thing is that many of them that argue against it will find once the change happens that they're actually much happier at school. And that, you know, I think that their reactions they they may be surprised by their by their own reactions but yeah i do think that the data is pretty overwhelmingly clear how destructive it is to both educational and social outcomes and you know i think that we sort of strayed from this as a society that the idea that our that institutions make decisions for the in the best interest of the group you know that's a harder and harder decision to sustain but I think in this case, it's just required of educational institutions. And um, it's going to be tricky. It's not going to make you popular. Our job is not to be popular. Our job is to maximize long-term outcomes and long-term gains for young people and the families who send them to us. So, Doug, in the piece, kind of like I did in the introduction, you talk about two epidemics, right? Like you talk about this in relation to the pandemic within an epidemic. Yeah, that's right. There you go. So first of all, let's zoom back to the broader one. 
and sort of uh, describe for me the thumbnail view of what's gone on over the past couple decades in terms of students' use of cell phones. And I, I'll just throw in something that I think is an important sort of characterization of this time frame. I think that it was 2007 that the first iPhone came out in. I think that's right. And that seems like iPhones have been with us forever. And it's just such a fundamental part of our world. But it's uh, incredibly recent. It's incredibly recent. But, but anyway, talk about the, the broader epidemic of, uh, of phone invasions. Great. So, uh, yeah, this is this is fascinating, which is 2007, the smartphone roughly is introduced. And possibly more importantly, 2011 is when the like button comes into our lives, right? And the like button harvests our need for a desire for social approval and a sense of belonging. And, you know, like uh, intermittent, unpredictable rewards are highly addictive to people, right? So the the like button especially is the thing that empowers, that, that drives people to social media and empowers, I hesitate to use the word, addiction, but really like, uh, you know, compulsive use. And so the interesting thing is that uh, Jean Twenge's research in her book, iGen, is really fascinating. She uh, She's a sociologist. She looks at long-term self-report data by teens in annual surveys of their own behavior, and she's been looking at them for generations. And what she says is that there is a hockey stick in there. There's a spike, a dramatic change, a wave of increase in teenage depression, anxiety, loneliness, and isolation. And it doesn't start in 2020 when the pandemic started. It starts in 2011 when the cell phone essentially became universal, i.e. like my teen, you could no longer tell your kids they couldn't have a cell phone. When social media became epidemic and when the like, when the like button uh, empowered social media to be more invasive in young people's lives. And from that point on, she describes you know, a wave of anxiety, isolation, and loneliness of historic proportions, the likes of what she'd never seen in, uh, in, you know, in studying these demographic data. And I would just point out that like that hockey stick predate, you know, this is before TikTok and the sort of generation 2.0 of really, of, of the really like most addictive forms of social media. And it predates the pandemic, which a cut off students from all the antidotes in their lives. The thing, you know, one of the other things that Twingy talks about is the kids who are least prone to suffer anxiety, depression, and isolation as a result of social media use are kids who play sports and kids who are involved in religious activities and kids who are consistently involved in goal-oriented group activities where they have consistent social interaction. All of those things evaporated during the pandemic. What did young people do? They doubled down their dosage. So what did they do when they were stuck in their rooms? They doubled down their dosage of social media. The average teen spends about eight hours a day on their phones on social media. Massive doses. Right. And so the wave of anxiety, depression, loneliness, et cetera, that we're seeing predates even though even, you know, those two phenomena of like, you know, the, the super social media applications at TikTok and the double dosing that happened during the pandemic. I think that um, as we bring kids back from the pandemic into schools, it's an academic crisis. We need to make sure that every, you know, uh Kids feel incredibly behind. We need to make sure that we're uh, from from an already inadequate standard. So we need to make sure that we're maximizing educational outcomes. But they're also they need to feel a strong sense of belonging and connection to the young people in the building, the adults in the building, to the institution and the endeavor of schooling. And if we're going to do those things, 
it has to happen without this device that um, one, it fractures attention, which I know that we'll talk about in a minute, but also fosters and accelerates feelings of disconnection among young people. So, Doug, I mean, a big part of this conjecture is, well, we need to take away cell phones in schools because it has a, a lot of downsides. Okay. Do we know that kids' access to, uh, to cell phones in schools is relatively unfettered? Uh, I'm just not sure that most people know the landscape. Yeah, uh, I think we know it, but we probably don't have the data, which we really should. Like, it's kind of shocking that we don't have data on this and that schools, you know, schools don't have like clearly published policies on this, right? This is the if, if there is education choice, it's the first thing I would choose for as a parent, which is like, uh, I go to schools and they tell me how they're going to infuse technology in my kids' lives. And I'm like, I want a school that's going to be like open book, pen, you know, uh, pen to paper for as long as possible. But I would say that, you know, it's pretty clear if you spend a lot of time in schools that most schools do not have clear, intact rules. And those that do are routinely ignored by students because this is the hard, it's a simple rule, which is you can't have your phone out and on during the day. That is really hard to reinforce because as soon as you have one teacher who's like, you know, I'm going to be the cool teacher or I'm going to be the teacher who's afraid to tell a kid to put away his or her cell phone. Right? This happened in, uh, in, uh, my daughter's school, there is a lot of fanfare about the fact that everyone's going to have to put their cell phone in a little caddy by the room door as soon as they enter. The, you know, the, uh, within two weeks, my daughter, you know, said like first six or eight or 10 teachers didn't enforce it. And then it became, you became the sort of super strict teacher if you did enforce it. And the kids said, no one else is enforcing it. And so other teachers started to cave. And within two weeks, you know, um, they were back to exactly where they began. And so my sense is that Many schools do not have a policy, many that probably most, many that do are unable to enforce them reliably. So the number of schools that are effectively able to restrict students' access to cell phones is, um, is preciously small. I'd say it's much more successful in the UK than it is here, but even there, a recent survey of teachers asked whether students had had their cell phones out in lessons in the last 24 hours, and more than a third of teachers said that they you know, absolutely had. All right. So let's get in a, a little bit to some of the arguments. You know, why would we want to get them specifically in schools? And, and you go through several in your article. Uh, so just sketch this out for me briefly. First, uh, it's bad for ac academics. Sure. So a cell phone is an attention fracturing machine. Social media in particular is constant new information coming at you as quickly as you can digest it or faster. The brain is neuroplastic. It it adapts, the, it adapts the way it thinks to the way that we use it. And so when you operate in a, in a state of constant half attention, constantly seeking new stimulus, your brain comes to expect that. You lose the ability to concentrate and sustain your singular attention on a, on a difficult task for a sustained period of time. And that, that ability to, uh, to harvest your selective attention, to focus on the task, to persist in the task, especially a difficult task when there's an easier choice would I rather read um, Shakespeare or would I rather check social media and see what everyone, see what I'm, of, of course, um, it takes an immense amount of self-discipline to resist the pull of social media. And so what happens is we get students who, whose capacity to sustain, to sustain states of intense concentration is diminished. And I would just say that this has a lot of effects that you might not think about. Yes, it you know affects their ability to you know to think and do quality work. But you know, we started to talk about my, my struggle with this as a parent. 
and you know, one of the things that's most important to me as a parent is reading. And I read to my kids constantly and they were all voracious readers. And then they got their cell phones and their reading behaviors changed dramatically, both in the amount that they read, but even when they do read, I'm thinking about my son recently. And one of the rare occasions when the book went out over his cell phone, he's lying on his back, reading a book on the couch and his cell phone is literally sitting on his chest. And every what, 10 seconds, bzz, there's a push message. Bzz, bzz. And so his fundamental experience of like finding out why the caged bird sings is interrupted every 10 seconds by dude, we're over at Byron's. Where are you? And like, guess what the Kardashian, the Kardashians are up to right now, et cetera, you know, and here's who the commanders have just drafted and, you know, 10,000 things. That is a fundamentally different experience in reading than you or I had growing up when we would lose ourselves in a book for 20 minutes or half an hour or an hour at a time in a state of deep meditation characterized by empathy and uh, an engagement in the story. People are much less psychologically committed to, to what they're thinking about when they're constantly interrupted. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that there's there's certainly an engagement and a focus here. And this reminds me, we recently did an episode on cognitive endurance. And, and some researchers had looked at this and, and this field experiment in India and found out, you know, there's some benefits just to sort of working hard on a challenging task without distraction. It's the killer app. It's the killer app, right? I don't know if you've read, read any of Cal Newport's work, but he's, you know, yes. it's, it's fascinating because he's a programmer right? uh, and he is adamant that the key to doing work like programming work, which I think is a fascinating analogy for like the new economy, because his argument is like, you know, basically like the world is flat now. And so you can, if you're a great programmer uh, and you can write the best code out there, you can sit in your living room or on the beach or wherever you can write it wherever you want to. And, uh, and it's, you know, it's uptake is potentially global. The upsides to being intellectually a little bit better are so massive, but so is the level of competition, right? And so you constantly have to refine your ability to master new things and, and be effective at them to do this coding work. And what, what he says is the key to being able to do this kind of intellectual work, which I think is a proxy for all intellectual work now, is the ability to sustain your concentration for long periods of time. He says, ironically, like he's a coder, but he's been, you know, he's like, but I, you know, I code with all devices off with systems to reduce my distractions so that I can become an attention machine. And we are allowing the opposite to happen to our young people. They live in a constant state of half attention. And you see it if you have kids and you give them a direction, you're like, can you take out the trash? Yeah, of course I'll take out the trash. And five minutes later, the trash isn't taken out. And you're like, why isn't the tra trash taken out? Because I forgot because I'm living in a constant state of half attention to all the things that happen around me. And that is, so it's annoying as a parent and it has all, you know, like other implications, but from an educational perspective, it's catastrophic. So bad for academics. I think the case there is pretty clear. It's sort of hard to argue with, but you make another case for socialization and mental health. Sketch that one for us. Yeah. We know, you know, just discussing Twenge's research and other research like it, that a cell phone is an isolation machine, especially for girls, by the way. But it's not just that it, that it increases races, rates of isolation and depression for the people who are using them. When cell phones are in the room, they change the behavior of everyone who's in the room, even the people who are not on their phones. So I'll just like, I interviewed a student for the, the book, Reconnect, which this article is an excerpt from. And she described coming back to school the first days after pandemic and how 
uh, you know, incredibly excited she was to see her friends. And she walks into the hallway and her friends are all like, she sees them like down the corner of the hallway and she's walking towards them. And she's like, they're all looking down at their phones, swiping, you know, and like, we are so wired for signals of belonging, right? We're deeply social creatures. Uh, you know, I, I get kind of into the, uh, the research on evolution in the book and talk about how, you know, we survived, we thrived in evolution and went from prey to predator because of our ability to form collective groups and therefore outwit and outhunt much stronger, more robust individual creatures. And so we've evolved to need belonging and to always be looking for these belonging signals, like eye contact from other people, um, hint of a smile when you walk in the room. If you walk in the room with your friends and no one gives you eye contact and no one smiles at you and greets you and makes it seem like they're happy to be there, it's it's worse than neutral, right? It, it feels wrong. And so the student is just describing walking down the hallway to see her friends on the first day back from pandemic. And she's just like this sense of utter isolation and disappointment. She's like, "Why? I might as well be back at, back sitting at my computer in my kitchen doing classes if no one, if my friends aren't even going to greet me and it's not like we're even in the room together because we're, you know, we are forever somewhere else. And so when we are, when, when people in a group are on cell phones, they disrupt the dynamics of the group that are fundamental to people's feeling of belonging and inclusion and membership in both informal social groups and in more formal institutions like school. And, and this is an interesting thing because with the academics, okay, I can see that there's a case and maybe more exposure over the pandemic to your cell phone might have deepened that. But when we're talking about particularly socialization and sort of yeah. like a, a culture of what you do and how people act, it seems like the pandemic was much worse. So I see that uh, bringing kids back to school and recreating normalcy, what would be normal and what that culture should look like was harder after the pandemic because kids were away. And so it takes a while to really build these things. And their social skills atrophied. That, right. They've atrophied. But if they also come back with just a greater market share of their time and attention, and they're just used to looking at screens, then rebuilding that becomes a much tougher sort of collective action problem because yes. so many people are used to being on phones that for some student leaders to come in and sort of energize the face-to-face -face community gets all the harder because there's just fewer receptive nodes to that kind of behavior. Yeah, let's talk about, I mean, this is really like, so now we're getting to like, so what are the downstream effects of what you describe as greater market share of cell phones in students' lives? Because I'd say like one of the big changes for me, one of the realizations at first, I was like, it is emphatically clear to me that from an educational perspective, there should never be a cell phone on or out in a classroom. But is it okay to have, you know, for kids to be looking at their cell phones in the hallways and at lunchtime? And at first, when I started writing this, I was like, yeah, sure, that's probably fine. It seems like a fair trade. And it overwhelmingly became clear to me like that, that that's actually just, it's almost as bad and that we really need to restrict that as well. So what are some downstream effects? Well, first of all, like when kids spend more and more of their time on cell phones, it means less and less of their time doing other things. It means, you know, it means less of their time reading. The book is all but dead. <laughs> uh, in the 1980s, 70 something percent of students read something for pleasure most days. And now that number is down at like 15%. But they also give up on other things like, you know, participation in sports is down. And we know that sports is an antidote to, to isolation and depression caused by any form of isolation, but including cell phones and things like clubs. You know, I, I know I know a, a kid who I'm close to 
uh, who her greatest joy is going to Spanish club and going to the science club and finding little ways to connect with other students after school because she's not an athlete. And one of the, one of the sad things that happens is that fewer and fewer kids come to those things because they're not interested in them and they're on their cell phones and they're, and so now instead of being 15 energetic kids in the debate club or the model UN of the science club, there are four and then there are three and the kids who are in the room are on their cell phones, hoping someone else will show up. And that is like, what you're looking at there is the last day of the science club. And so the, the venues in which kids can connect with, with one another also atrophy when kids interest, when, you know, when, when, when market share of cell phones becomes overwhelming. And even when there are informal venues for kids to interact, they have in many cases lost the habits or the skills for how to leverage them. So I talked about in, in the book, this really fascinating school in, in Cardiff, Wales that I work with. And when they came back from pandemic, they said, look, we're not going to have, we're not going to have cell phones at lunch and at recess, because that's a time when people, kids need to connect with one another and have, you know, human interactions and laugh and whatever. And when they started doing it, the kids were just sort of like standing around if they could, you know, mostly with their cell phones out, but even when they said without their cell phones, there just wasn't like, they had lost the ability to socialize in groups because they didn't do it as much. And so what they did was they tried to build in structures that caused them to interact in constructive ways. So they put out a bunch of tables with decks of cards on them so the kids could play cards at lunch. And they put up ping pong tables and like chess sets and you know, a giant Zenga, a Jenga set and, th- and to cause students to have a locus around which they could interact and therefore rebuild their, you know, like playing cards together. You know, there are like subtle comments under your breath and funny things and you're reading each other's eye contact and you're rebuilding your ability to navigate a group and your position within the dynamics of that group. And that's profoundly important to everybody, but especially to young people. And so I think this is, this is sort of the story of downstream effects. It's not, it's not enough just to say, we're not going to have them during class. There have to be times during school when we rebuild opportunities for students to socialize. And we probably have to put some structure into that because, you know, if you have kids, you know, the number of kids who know how to walk into a room and greet someone and look them in the eye and talk to an adult or talk to a peer, you know, like when you have the slightest awkward situation, now you can just look down at your phone and, uh, and it all goes away because you enter this, you know, online universe. And the result is that people get less out of their social interactions with their peers because they don't know how to maximize the benefit they receive from them psychologically. So a lot of this you could put under the, well, this is, cell phones are bad for socialization because kids aren't learning to socialize in something. But when you get to sort of the unit level, the school level, it's a it's a whole different thing. And you uh, refer to this in the article, I'm sure in the book, as cultivating a sense of belonging. Yes. And that's, a, that's not a characteristic of an individual, right? That's a characteristic of an institution or a classroom and, and so forth. So how do all these little pieces add up to either, you know, not having a sense of belonging or developing a sense of belonging? And why do you make the case that school leaders need to be intentional about creating that sense of belonging? Well, the the first thing is that, you know, I think there are lots of things that schools can and should do around the margins to create a sense of belonging so that, so that you know, we, we know that students who feel connected to school and included in school and whose identity is connected, they feel like school is a place for them. They're going to do better academically and they're going to persist and they're going to stay in school and they're not going to be the kids who are chronically absent. So one tool that we have to address that is things like extracurriculars. 
and I tell the story in the book of a, you know, a principal of a school who sits down with four or five, you know, members of his leadership team, and they just try to reinvent extracurricular activities with the idea that like the purpose of the act, these activities is to make kids feel a sense of belonging and community in school. Uh, and they came up with a bunch of really brilliant ideas, right? They extended the tryout period so that, you know, even the kids who got cut got to play with the team for a month, right? That is, that is like fairly simple and fairly brilliant. And they uh, engineered the audience experience at games so that um, one, it was more, felt more special to play in front of the audience, but even the people in the audience felt a strong sense of belonging. You know, I think of all the people I know who went to, went to, chose their college or university because they wanted to be a fan of the sports team and go to the sports. So like, you know, going to events that are well-engineered and run and well-run and where there's cheering and chanting and someone's got a t-shirt cannon and they're shooting t-shirts up into the crowd. Like those are places where people are feeling a sense of, of belonging. And so they spent a lot of time thinking about like, what are the purpose of extracurriculars is belonging and community. How do we re-engineer to do that? And I think that that's brilliant. But I also think that you can, you know, 75 to 80% of the amount of time that kids spend in school is going to be spent in the classroom. And so unless the classroom communicates a strong sense of belonging to kids and they feel like this is a place where I'm connected to my community and I'm important and my voice is heard and I matter and I'm happy and I feel a sense of that I'm part of something, we're not going to win, especially because that's the purpose of school. And so I talk a lot about just like, we have to think about the classroom. If you imagine a Venn diagram, right, there are two circles. One circle is, is maximizing academic outcomes and one is maximizing the sense of belonging students feel and they overlap. And there's a ton of synergy between those things. And schools have to be, I think, intentional about getting into that overlap of those two places where students walk into the classroom and I ask a student, I say, Nat, you know, how, how is Jonas changing at the end of this novel and what did you think about it? So I ask you to, to opine on the book and you look around and your classmates are slouched in their chairs and looking out the window or looking at their phone uh, and their body language says, I don't give a damn what you're saying right now. I couldn't care less. I'm not even listening. Who in their right mind gives a heartfelt intentional answer or responds to someone else's heartfelt intentional answer by developing or growing it? Nobody, right? You say the minimum you can say to get off the hook and then you stop talking. But in a classroom where like you're, Classmates are looking at you and they're smiling and they're nodding and they, and after you speak, someone says, I want to, I agree with Nat or even like, I disagree with Nat and I saw it differently. I think it's so fascinating that like, if the person who goes after you says, I was thinking about what Nat said and I disagree with it, that validates you and tells you that your words are important and your peers respected you and listened to you much more than if someone makes a point that agrees with you, but says what I was going to say is, which is a way of saying I don't care what Nat said. I'm going to say what I was going to say anyway, right? His words were irrelevant to me. That has the effect of disconnecting you. And then you ask yourself the question of like, why, why would I speak in class anyway? And then you become passive. And then you perceive yourself to be an outsider in the classroom. And uh, that affects your relationship to, to learning. And so I think like there, there are important instructional and cultural moves that we can make to ensure that uh, we build an optimal environment in classrooms for both academic achievement and for belonging. And those things, and those things work in synergy. So Doug, let me push beyond a little bit to a fourth thing that, that cell phones may be bad for. This may be beyond your argument, but I think it sort of brushes right up against it. And I'm happy to make the argument, but I want to know what you think about it. 
a lot of the things that you just described are more than just sort of instrumental to a functional school. It's more than just, well, this is you, how you should behave because we'll get a better test score or because we'll have a more cohesive environment. It goes beyond that. It's a well-being argument. That's yeah. right. This is the way we want you to be in the world, right? And we're often a little gun shy as people talking about, you know, public policies or the way schools should be run or so forth to be prescriptive about these things. But I think you're going to find a pretty big audience here for this one. That is that... Having people staring into little, you know, three by five inch screens as a, a big portion of their life is a poverty. And so perhaps one of the things that we should encourage schools to embrace is that we build into our structure an attitude and the values that we have, which says, you know, TikTok is not the way to happiness and you need to build the self-discipline. And to do that, we are not only going to give you this message, we're also going to structure the environment to re reflect it. Do you agree with that? Yes, emphatically. And we are arguably the last institution left in society that can, do, that can hope to accomplish that for our young people. Do they deserve to experience life as we knew it before the cell phone, when, when you were deeply connected to groups, when you could sustain states of concentration, when you occasionally meditated and looked outside at the, you know, uh, at the birds and thought about, or sat and thought about what you were reading without being distracted by your phone uh, for, you know, for five minutes at a time. Do they deserve that? Yes. What other institutions can provide that sort of, sustained umbrella to create it very few i think what it is going you know to me it's a well-being in england they often use the word safeguarding right the first thing i want from a school is to ensure the well-being of my child and to safeguard him or her from influences that erode potentially could erode their their mental health and their well-being and this is a classic example of that what i think it requires is some bravery on the part of schools which is they have to be willing to say, yeah, I know that, you know, cell phones are really popular and the kids are going to push back and some of the parents are going to push back. And I just have to be prepared for that. And I have to be prepared. You know, I think the other maybe part of the story, which is like, this is a big demand on schools at a time when trust in institutions more broadly is at an all time low in American society. People do not trust institutions to make decisions or, to, or enforce decisions for their individual good. You know, they're often, particularly upper middle-class parents, outraged at the thought of a school asking their child to make a sacrifice for the common good of the school. And so if I'm going to ask families to do that, I better make sure that my process is rock solid, right? The process, quality of process, fairness of process leads to people's commitment to and faith in the outcome. So I better be prepared with the data and I better be able to explain to parents and students and teachers, P.S., why are we doing this? Why does it matter? Why is it so profoundly important? It's going to be hard, but we're going to persist with it anyway. And this is this is the goal that we're trying to get to. And so um, it requires some bravery and it's going to require some planning and preparation. You know, one of the things I was tacitly trying to do in the book was just assemble the case and the data for schools so that they could then go ahead and present it to parents and students and say, this is, we're doing this because we love your kids and we believe in them and we want the best for them. And that's, you know, that's the why. And I think that the great majority of you will see it and, uh, and then know that we're going to follow through on it.
All right, Doug, uh, on the report card, we have a middle segment called Grade It. Uh, on Grade It, I name things. Do you give me a grade, A to F? Are you ready? Mm-hmm. The efficacy of teacher professional development. It's a mixed bag. Uh, it is great in some places. It is woefully poor, generally speaking, all the things we know about what makes for learning and long-term memory and behavior change and what makes things interesting and fascinating. Those all disappear when we get adults in the room together and subject them to professional development. So on the aggregate, I'm going to go C, C minus. School uniforms. Love them. Uh, B plus. B plus, B plus. The Scarlet Letter. Classic novels for the block, please, Chuck. (laughs) Uh, I just, uh, I love, you know, did I enjoy every page of the Scarlet Letter? No. Did I find it a slog? Yes. Am I profoundly glad that I read it? Yes. Do I think it's the role of schools to, in many cases, cause me to read things that are part of the intellectual heritage of of a society and that I wouldn't read otherwise? And that the notion that saying to a 12-year-old, you get, you should read whatever books you think you want to in all your wisdom of a 12-year-old who's read three books cover to cover your entire life. No, I don't believe those things. I give the scarlet letter. My 18-year-old self is about is about to scream <laughs> when I give it a He's B not plus, here. He's not here. A plus. I had to read the scarlet letter in high school. And I mean, I remember being outraged and disliking it and hating it. And of course, like, like this is the story of school, right? As a parent, now I'm like, please make my children read the Scarlet the Scarlet Letter because I know how good it's going to be for them. The long term potential of online learning. Are there any easier questions on this quiz? <laughs> we try to keep them. We try to keep them right down the middle. Look, I think one of the things that we learned from the pandemic is that the classroom matters, the in person matters, and that educate. Like when we talk, like. The profound sense of belonging you get from being in a room, it's a physical sensation when you're with a group of people discussing an idea that cannot be replicated online. Uh, And so for the most part, I think it is far from optimal. I do think there are cases when it can can supplement uh, and maybe in a few cases supplant. You know, I think like the story of rural schools is woefully under-acknowledged in the the U.S., uh, and, you know, how difficult it is to uh, provide, to find physics teachers, an AP physics teacher. And so the result in your small town in Iowa is there is no AP physics. Maybe there's no physics. Is there p- the potential for sort of a blended solution where there's a teacher in the room who's the sort of the docent or the TA and the, physic- and the physicist comes on three times a week? to do the, you know, the lectures and then you do labs on Like, I, th- I think there are fairly narrow ways in which online learning can supplement, but not supplant the work that happened. Like fundamentally, I think that education is an in-person face-to-face interaction between teacher and learner, which is, which is why people call me a Luddite. <laughs> Here, here's the, the big one to grade. The state of public schooling in America. Um, inadequate. I'm going to go uh, inadequate. And I would just say, you know, like that is not about the individuals involved. The individuals involved are committed and fantastic people who work incredibly hard. But the systems that we put around them do not 
do not serve children adequately. And it's really interesting. I've been doing a lot of work in England. And when I look, when I compare the public schools in England to public schools in the U.S., I feel sadly much more optimistic for them than I do for us. I think there's a much more robust culture of like of engaging the science of learning and the idea of like professional understanding of cognitive science and teaching and of even of like of your discipline. I think there are a lot of things that we could fix relatively easily and that we need to fix. And, you know, the truth is that public school system is is insufficient and if it wasn't all you know the great majority of parents who could opt out of it or opt into the sort of pockets of quality would not be doing it but everyone who can does so letter grade the market tells us the answer to that question um i'm gonna let people infer my letter grade from that (laughs) fair enough last Education Twitter. Um, uh, sometimes awful and oftentimes, you know, oftentimes helpful. Sometimes awful, sometimes helpful. Uh, I'll give it a C. A C. Fair enough. All right. Thanks for uh, running down some grades for us. Let me uh, go back to our epidemic and pandemic. I'm going to share a concern of mine and see what you think about it. And this is a little bit of a minefield for you. You called yourself a Luddite here, right? So I'm going to push on that a little bit. There's some people that could just say, oh, you know, the cell phones aren't that bad. And kids need to adapt to it anyway. And there's... Oh, yeah. Like so, someone someone accused me of moral, of like, of moral panic or, uh, you know, like, I, I don't feel panic uh, and compared it to like, oh, it's like, like people in previous generations felt about comic books and rock and roll. And all indeed. That. Indeed. I well, I there's, don't that's, I don't think that's what's going on here, but thanks. But, but there is a question about how much just technology in general is appropriate in schools. Mm-hmm. And I think that one of the things we need to realize that has dramatically shifted during the pandemic is that we went from most schools being, you know, whatever, three students to one device, maybe two and a half, to most schools are one-to-one now. There are one-to-one, that so that's one student has one device for, and, and these aren't phones, they're like tablets or their Chromebooks or so forth. And that means that we've spent boatloads of money injecting technology. And so if you're a school leader now or a district leader now, you know, what you're going to say is we bought all those computers. What are you using them for? So with the ubiquity of devices that we have now. Budget accountability for having squandered all this. <laughs> That's right. What are you going to waste all those resources? It's the sunk cost parable. Don't make decisions based on sunk costs. Well, so what do you think? How should schools approach this? And is it different from the cell phone issue? Yes, it is. It's emphatically different, right? Social media is really the problem. Right. The cell phone is actually an incredibly powerful and in many ways immensely beneficial device. Social media is, profound, is profoundly problematic. The problem is you can't separate the two. I think the thing that I would, and there, there are there immense benefits to technology in schools? Yes, immensely, especially teacher-mediated technologies. But yes, there are. I would just say that the more you have the capacity to exert limits on the technology, the more you have the capacity to extract its benefits. Right. If I can, if I can make you put it away reliably, and I have systems to that can help all the teachers make it viable for them to make the kids put it away, so that we can have it out when it makes sense. I'm not talking about cell phones here. I'm talking about you know like other technology tools. 
um, then the more I'm able to use them when it makes sense for beneficial purposes and only those purposes. But there's also the catnip effect, which is like, oh, here's this bright, shiny, glossy, fascinating thing. It's technolog technological. It must be good, right? Uh, and so I think there's a little bit of a mind, sh mind shift that's necessary to be like, to really uh, interrogate within ourselves, like what what is the benefit that the technology is adding here? There are lots of cases where the, where the benefits will be clear, but I think there are a lot of places where we're just like, oh, we're we're going to take the lame exercise of making a poster that we would have wasted time with now, and now we're going to make it PowerPoint, and kids are going to be learning PowerPoint, um, and therefore it's beneficial and um, that's a load of it. Yeah. Of course, PowerPoint will change by the time these kids hit the workforce and be no longer used. But, you know, we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. Yeah, my, my first social media account, I got a Facebook account and I got it because I was like, <laughs> my kids were like, you know, three and six at the time. And I was like, soon enough, they're going to want to get on social media. So I better learn it so I understand it before they get it. And of course, by the time they got it, they were like, Facebook. <laughs> okay, boomer. <laughs> Way to stay ahead of the curve, Doug. Way to stay ahead of the curve. Um, what do you say to uh, school leaders and people who react and they say, yeah, I can't get away with that. I can't do that. It, it's too big of a, a lift, either with arguing with parents or my district doesn't do it. Or for building leaders who say, I can't get all my teachers to toe the line. What's the kind of... Um, I mean, how do you just respond to that general, we can't get away with it, it's too big of a lift? Um, I'd say you got to do it. And if you can't, get out of the way so someone else can. Honestly, like, uh, I just think that sometimes in life there are moral imperatives. And I know it's not going to make you popular, right? Last time I heard you didn't take the job because it was going to make you popular. It was because you embraced your responsibility to think about what's beneficial to people in the long run. I do think though, that like one of the, the very last section of the book is about choice and school choice. And I like, having said that, I probably sound like a jerk. I love you all school leaders. I know how difficult this is. And I think one of the simplest things that we could do to make it a lot more viable for people to make this decision and other challenging decisions is to empower school choice. If I say that, like, look, I get it's reasonable to me if there are two schools in my in my town and one says we're going to be low tech, high text, and we're going to restrict cell phone access and we're going to make that promise explicit. It's a lot easier to enforce because they made that promise. And you can say to the parent who's like, but I want my child to be able to have a cell phone all day. You can say, well, we've made a promise to all the people in the school. We're not going to do it. And that's a lot easier if there's a high tech school that says, look, we just don't believe that guy Lamav, like he's like, everyone knows what it, you know what a, you know, X or Y or Z he is. And so we're going to go with, we're going to go high tech and your kids can have the right to their cell phones. And we're going to, we're going to have iPad loaded, you know, student desks, and we're going to do it all. It is a lot easier to implement any idea with fidelity when there is reasonable parent choice on the model. And so I like the biggest change for me from pandemic is I've always believed in school choice for academic quality and academic rigor. And I've, increasingly come to believe that there is a place for school choice for model and approach and philosophy of education limited can't be you know can't be like we can't be like balkanized and you know completely but i think some reasonable amount of school choice on model allows school leaders to not have like i, I tell the story in the book of this principal who i know 
who um, she was just struck. This is like in 2019, of how much time she wasted on bus behavior. I'm like, the kids would get to school and someone would have made someone else cry on the buses and there were, you know, someone would have thrown something on the bus and all the time that she felt like she was should have been spending on curriculum and instruction and developing her teachers and thinking about math curriculum, she was spending mopping up from the bus behavior. And so she said, you know what, I'm going to... Um, I'm going to make a rule and there's going to be, you know, there's going to be assigned seats on the bus. And what she said was there were 15 parents, high powered, you know, lawyers in many cases who were outraged by this infringement on their children's freedom and free will to sit where they wanted to on the bus. And she spent the next six months battling with those parents and talking to the superintendent about those parents proposed lawsuit, you know, and like, she never got any of that time back because fighting with people about is arguing over is so expensive and wastes everybody's time and in the end causes people not to do things. The difficulty of executing things like this causes people not to even try. And that is sort of the hidden story of American public schools, which is every American public school is a muddy mix of half-baked ideas because it's so hard to have a have an operant philosophy and execute on it. If my philosophy is that we should write in every cl in every classroom across the curriculum and every student should write two high quality sentences summary, summarizing the core ideas of what they've learned in every classroom and we're gonna do that, I then have to face the fact that there are gonna be 10 teachers with their arms folded in the staff room who are gonna say, I'm not gonna do that. Or they're gonna say I'm gonna do it and then they're not gonna do it because they know that I can't follow through. And so in an environment like that, I stop trying to have intact ideas of fidelity and therefore, we never, everybody loses because we never have great school. We should have a school that's writing intensive and a school that's not, and people can choose. And we never, we never get great models of anything. And we never learn anything about what works because we have this morass. And I think that cell phones and technology are a classic case where like the time we spend arguing and fighting over like what rules are okay and can I enforce them? It's just like, it's a loss for everybody. So for district leaders who say, yeah, we couldn't get away with this. And if we could, show me who did it. I mean, are there examples? Are there examples out there in schools, maybe even districts, where they say, yeah, this is the policy. We're sticking to it. The state of Victoria in Australia has accomplished this. You know, like thousands of schools, they just did it. <laughs> because they, In part because they believed that they could. And yeah, there were parents who fought back. And yeah, there were parents who were unhappy, but they did it. And now actually, ironically, like, after, you know, buy-in is often an outcome and not a prerequisite. People who are skeptical at first now are like, now they tell little white lies and they're like, oh, no, I was in favor of it all. I see how beneficial it was. I just wanted to make sure that it was done right, of course. So, like, you know, there are hundreds of, there are hundreds of schools in the UK that have done this individually. There is, you know, a state system of schools that has done it in Australia. So, yes, there are models out there. It can be done. Uh, maybe the first step is to believe it can be done. So, Doug, if we were on here talking about student nutrition and we were saying, you know, we, we need to really get schools to make free breakfast healthy and lunch is healthy. You'd have a lot of people tell you, I think, arguably, well, I don't know if schools can do this. They, I don't know if schools can push back on the nutrition effectively because they've only got kids for so much of the time. And that's certainly the case here. What do you what would you tell not school leaders, but parents? on this because the decisions that parent make that parents make on these things are a i think going to be 
pretty hugely important for kids. And B, they are difficult. This is not an easy thing that I want to argue through with my kid. And my kid's pretty good on these counts. So what would you say? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I think, you know, like you can't really generalize about parents on this one. They're all over the map. But I think there are a lot of parents out there who feel a ton of anxiety about how much time their kids are spending on on cell phones and would actually like for the schools to support them. They'd be happy and relieved to feel like they have an ally because they are tiny, helpless boys who can't really, who can't exert much control over that whole sector of their, of their students' lives. And they know that it's, um, that it's counterproductive for them. And they, uh, in, in many ways, they, I think a lot of parents feel like they're helpless. So, you know, it, it's hard to generalize, but I think that, um, I think that a lot of parents, there probably be a small number of parents who'd be very vocal and uh, very contrary, and a lot of parents who would quietly be quite happy to see it happen. Uh, Doug, I'm just interested in your reaction to this in this context. You talked about uh, Twangy's research that you've looked at. You sort of summarized uh, a, a lot of that in here. I, uh, before the pandemic, was discussing this, sort of starting to get some research on students and cell phones and talked to a developmental psychologist. And he and I said, you know, are these bad for kids? Just generally, are these tools apt for kids? And he said, look, you remember in that dev psych class you took in college where you had the rats in the maze and you would build the maze and you would train the rats and you had a little machine. And if the, the, the rat hit the bar, then the, hat, the, the rat got the, the reward, right? And I said, yes. And he said, what we are doing is putting something that is a thousand or a million times more sophisticated than that in kids' pockets uh, across the nation and expecting them to adapt to it. And that really struck me, first of all, just because, you know, it, these are devices that are algorithmically programmed to capture our attention. They are, engin they are engineered by the finest minds in society to <laughs> disrupt our attention. And um... and they have the greatest motivator, the, the profit motive behind them to propel them forward. So it's quite a constellation. So, I, you know... My thought in this, you know, the phrase, if you're not paying for the product, you are the product. Indeed. And yeah. so when you find yourself in this situation, I think that, you know, part of the part of the appropriate analysis that I think that we've avoided sort of both in schools, but as parents, too, is uh, because this the ubiquity of this technology and the usage for our kids and hell for ourselves, right? I mean, it's not like I don't have the, the the phone grabbing for my attention too, is to just identify, you know, the challenge that we're up against. Yeah. And, um, and then the question is, well, what are we doing that's responsible in relation to our, our kids and these, these tools? How much stress do you think uh, school leaders, public leaders, and just adults, should be putting on this for kids' well-being. I just think it's urgently, I think it's urgently important, both for their well-being and for their academic benefit. And I, it's not like this is a temporary issue that's going to go away in three years. And you know, it's like the pandemic is really is you know has been like an incredibly. Uh, catastrophic disruption to the most important to all institutions in society, but including the school is the most important institution in society. But presumably in like five years, you know, for the most part, it will be in the, in the rearview mirror. 
devices, social media, so they are not going away. Right? Uh, and if we allow not only suboptimal, but a, disa a the disastrous habit to get started, like we will, it is only going to get harder to rein it in. I just think it's a, if we're serious about what we say, that we are the stewards of, of young people's well-being and welfare, then we have to we have to step up and recognize that it's a it's a difficult ask, but it's a time of moral imperative, and we have to ask. And if I can just say, when you were talking, I was thinking about the big lie, because you were you were talking about um, how the devices are engineered to ensure compulsion, if not addiction. The big lie is. Well, kids are going to live with cell phones for the rest of their lives. And so schools shouldn't restrict cell phones. Schools should teach children to make smart decisions about cell phones. I think that this is a, an absurd and nefarious argument. Uh, the notion that somehow teachers who are trained in math and science and English and history and art are somehow going to counteract the addiction of a generation through the most powerful and pernicious device that's been socially engineered to addict them through a few pithy lessons where they say, guys, exercise good judgment and, you know, don't uh, make sure to spend time away from yourself on the idea that that is somehow going to be the, the solution to a, uh, a mass rewiring of a generation is um, absurd and profoundly irresponsible. My colleague at AEI, Yuval Levin, recently argued in the New York Times that more serious legislation could take care of the social media problem for children. He notes the same problem you do. He says that, you know, right now they're not really allowed to do it with kids under 13, but they do. We could give that law some teeth and raise the age to 16 or 18. So let's say Yuval or you could get their prescription to try and curb some of the problems that come with social media use and cell phone usage. Who do you think is going to actually have their prescription make more of a difference for kids? Can I opt for both? First of all, I just want to say that you had me at Yuval Levin. Uh, I quote him in the book. Uh, I just, I find his, his work profound and I quote him in the book. I think his work on institutions like was spent a lot of time thinking about it, writing this book. And I think that he's fundamentally right, which is, I think that we're going to look back at this generation in the way that we look back on smoking. And we're going to be like, my God, we raised a whole generation of kids and we exposed them without any constraint or limitation to an addictive, deleterious product um, without any regulation or oversight. Uh, and I think we'll be shocked and embarrassed. I think what Yuval is talking about is absolutely necessary. Um, and I guess in the ideal world, I think um, it would empower parents to make optimal choices for their own kids outside of school. But I also think there's a separate set of decisions that schools need to make about learning behaviors and belonging behaviors within schools. So I would vote for both. Um, and I would vote for me and Yuval getting to have a beer to plan the, plan the overthrow. 
Sounds like a plan. When I see him next time in the office, I'll uh, I'll let him know. Doug Lamov, thanks for coming on the report card to talk to us about your article, Take Away Their Cell Phones. Great. Thanks. And if people want to read more about it, uh, the book is Reconnect, uh, and it comes out in a month or so. Thanks for listening to the report card with Nat Malkus, and special thanks to our guest, Doug Lamov. We'll include a link to Take Away Their Cell Phones, Reconnect, and some of Doug's other work in the show notes. You can subscribe to The Report Card on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download podcasts. And while you're there, take a moment to leave us a review so other people will find the show. Send us your comments, questions, or topic suggestions to ed.podcast at aei.org. That's all for this episode. I'm Nat Malkus.